all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Do you have any health care question that's affecting your family today? Have you been wondering about what's going on with my child? What are some of the health issues that you need an answer to this morning? Give us a call and we'll see if we can't answer those right here on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens because today is open topic day and we would love to hear what's on your mind. You can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In a symbolic start to a peaceful transition of power, President Obama is hosting President-elect Donald Trump at the White House this hour. Both leaders have expressed the need to take steps to unite a country polarized during a caustic campaign. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie tells NBC's Today Show that Obama and Trump are not likely to revisit insults of the past. That's politics, though. And I think what these two men recognize is that now this is about governing and leading the nation and the world. And they have a lot more important things to talk about than uh, slights. First Lady Michelle Obama is meeting with Trump's wife, Melania Trump, privately in the White House residence. Trump's transition team has launched a new website and Twitter account as the Republican prepared prepares to take office. Visitors to greatagain.gov can find information on Trump's policies as well as biographical information about the Republican. The Office of Israel's Prime Minister says that he spoke with both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in separate phone calls last night. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu congratulated Donald Trump in a written statement, then in a video, and then followed up with a phone call. His office says the two men have known each other for many years and had a warm and heartfelt conversation, in which Trump invited Netanyahu to the U.S. at the first opportunity. Netanyahu has had a strained relationship with President Barack Obama and strongly opposed his administration's nuclear deal with Iran, which Trump has promised to scrap. Netanyahu's office says he also spoke by phone with Hillary Clinton, thanking her for supporting Israel. She has an open invitation to visit, it says. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Jerusalem. Moscow says it has detained a group of Ukrainian saboteurs planning to attack sites in Russia's annexed territory of Crimea. From Moscow, Charles Maines has details. Russia's federal security services say agents seized explosive devices, armaments, and ammunition from three members of Ukrainian military intelligence in the city of Sevastopol. The Ukrainian government in Kiev, in turn, said the story was the latest Moscow fabrication aimed at discrediting Ukraine in the eyes of the world. Russia has faced punishing Western sanctions over its annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Yet Kremlin strategists have voiced cautious optimism that the U.S. may change course and ease that policy under a new Trump administration. 
During the U.S. presidential campaign, candidate Trump called for better relations with Russia and suggested he could recognize Russia's rightful seizure of the Crimean Peninsula. For NPR News, I'm Charles Maines in Moscow. Stocks were climbing higher with a global rebound and share prices continuing two days after Trump's election. At last glance on Wall Street, the Dow was up 137 at 18,737. S&P was off a fraction. NASDAQ also down 65 points. This is NPR. The man accused of detonating bombs in New York and New Jersey has appeared in a Manhattan courtroom on federal terrorism charges. But Ahmed Khan Rahimi has not entered a plea. Rahimi's attorney, David Patton, raised concerns with the judge about whether his client was receiving adequate medical attention for injuries that Rahimi sustained during a shootout with police in September before he was captured. Rahimi is charged with setting off a pipe bomb at a Marine Corps charity race in Seaside Park, New Jersey, planting two pressure cooker bombs in New York City, planting other devices that did not detonate. The attacks injured 30 people in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood. The United Nations is desperately calling on Syria's warring parties to allow urgently needed food to reach eastern Aleppo to avert mass hunger this winter. Lisa Schlein reports the U.N. warns a quarter of a million people in the besieged city are at risk. The U.N. reports people throughout Syria will suffer in the coming harsh winter months, but it warns hundreds of thousands of people in eastern Aleppo face mass starvation. U.N. official Jan Egelin says people there haven't received humanitarian aid since July. The reports we have now from uh, within East Aleppo is that the last food rations are being distributed as we speak. Egelin says humanitarian agencies are being blocked from delivering food and other relief supplies to eastern Aleppo because of insecurity and bureaucratic difficulties. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. And I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Staples, with copy and print solutions for small business, including color copies and presentations, booklets and manuals, and custom holiday cards and invitations. More at Staples stores or staples.com. Staples. Make more happen. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. You know, I don't know of any more important issue for people than the health of their families and and of themselves and their loved ones. You know, today's program is about that. It's about your problems that you're having right now, your concerns with the health of your children or family. 
and we'll be taking any and all questions that you might have on the health of your children or family. So give us a call this morning. We would love to hear from you. You can reach us by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send us an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Well, one of the biggest health care issues that I think is uh, affecting all of us is uh, post-traumatic election disorder. Uh, I think everybody's sort of uh, uh, either recovering or celebrating or, uh, you know, it's a lot. It takes a while to uh, get over there. It should be a holiday. I saw some a couple of different tweets about that. Really, Election Day should be a holiday. We should celebrate that. That's a great uh, right and privilege that we have to vote. And uh, it'd be great if we could just have the whole day off, because I don't know about you, but it was a challenge for me to get to the get to the polls to vote. Uh, it was uh, it was a mess out there with uh, with the lines and everything. So the health care of your children, you know, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, we try to focus on those issues that uh, that are most pressing. And most of the time we have a program that's dedicated to a certain topic. Of course, we always welcome any kind of questions that you might have or concerns or comments about the health of your children. And then some things, you know, are, seem to rise to the top based on what we're seeing seasonally or some of the questions that we get. We try to focus on that. But today is one of those days when we want to open it up to any and all questions that you might have so that you can get a good chance to get some free healthcare advice right here from the doctor, Dr. J, uh, Dr. Jimmy here. And uh, and we'll try to do the best we can to answer your questions. So give us a call this morning or email us. And uh, speaking of an email, here is an email that we received this week. Um, this is from June. June says, I have a 15-year-old son who's Uh, Pretty healthy, has not had any other health problems in the past, but he keeps texting me after school saying that he's having some stomach aches and some other problems. Uh, He seems to do fine once once I get home about five o'clock, but he uh, and he's doing fine in his sports. He plays soccer pretty competitively. Uh, I have noticed that this occurs around test time, though. Should I take him into the physician, uh, or should we, uh, or should we just sort of blow this off? So that's a great question for a teenager. Certainly, it's a, it's an important thing that affects kids. You know, kids can complain of lots of different things um, uh, at different times, and uh, you have to really focus on what the symptom is uh, and match it up to what's going on and. You know, I I would never tell a family to blow off any kind of issues that they might have with their children, but you do have to be aware of other things that are going on. I think, uh, you know, in this email that June really uh, sort of clued in on that. So so anxiety uh, type uh, situations at school can be common that causes uh, either real somatic, what we call somatic or body complaints. So you might have a child that has headaches if, you know, that's, uh, if they have a lot of anxiety about something around that time, whether that's a test or whether that's social things that they're going through with their friends or boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, all those things really can can come out with those complaints, or they might just be saying, hey, I'm sick to avoid something else. And uh, taking a direct approach is usually pretty good. Sometimes kids uh, don't want to come out and say, hey, I did not do a good job on studying for this test or studying for this uh, material, and uh, I'm trying to get out of doing it. But, uh, you know, if you just if you're upfront about that, that's that's a good thing to do. 
One, uh, if you do feel that that's what's going on, if there's some inconsistencies there between what their complaints are and what's, uh, you know, what they're able to do afterwards, if they're able to participate in sports or other activities, I would say, you know, just be careful about that. If it if it's not getting better when you're dealing with the, the actual issues that are there that you think are there with uh, whatever anxiety they're having, then you probably want to consult a, a physician to, to see that uh to see see your child and and dig a little deeper. And in some instances, they're more likely to tell somebody else about that, whether that's their physician or nurse practitioner or uh, whoever, you know, that you take them to, then then a parent, uh, particularly if there are social issues involved that they may not want to divulge to you. But I think that is something to keep in mind. Now, one of the things as a parent that I would advise against, sometimes you might feel the urge if they do have a lot of anxiety, and that seems to be what's you know, causing a lot of the problems, somatic complaints that they're having. Uh, some parents would go ahead and take them out of school. Uh, you know, you need to, they, one of the other things that you need to learn through adolescence and really for the rest of your life is the consequences for behavior. And even though you might have anxiety, the goal is not to avoid whatever's triggering that anxiety but to uh, to be able to move through it and to deal with it. So even if it's a true anxiety disorder that's recurrent and pervasive, if it's interfering with school or social relationships in such a way that it needs to be treated either with, you know, with uh, behavioral modifications or cognitive behavioral modifications that they need, it's important to uh, to keep in mind that they need to that the goal needs to be that they re-enter those situations that they're able to do that. So. Uh, I would just be careful with that. You know, talk to your kids. We're scared to talk to our kids. Maybe our kids are, are scared to talk to you. Try texting them. They're pretty good at that, uh, most all of them. So uh, even even the small ones. Sometimes I do that when I try to talk to my child and he's on his phone, and I'll text him and say, hey, would you rather text? So thank you for that, June, and uh, good luck with that. If you run into any problems, I would say, uh, you know, contact your your physician. Uh, the phone number today, if you have any questions or comments about the health of your children, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Chloe in Jackson. Good morning, Chloe. Hey. Thank you for calling. What's your question? Um, I have a 10-year-old daughter who she gets UTIs uh, quite often, and I just wondered if that's normal. Is there something to do to prevent it? Or 10 just seems so young to be to be having urinary tract infections. So, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Did, did you by chance have uh, the the question? I mean, did you have the uh, uh, um, urinary tract infections as a child too? No, I did okay. not. Okay. Yeah, and sometimes they'll they'll run into families. Is the only reason I'm asking that. So, yeah, ten year old. Uh, that's not you know that is a little young to have those. It's certainly a common thing that we see in uh, in kids uh, as far as infections. It tends to be you know more common in girls than in boys. Um, but if they're if the younger they are, the more we worry about complications in the pipes, so to speak. So the drainage system 
from the kidneys down to the bladder and then out through the urethra, you know, out out of the body with the elimination of urine. If there are any kind of kinks in the any of that system uh, at any level, then it can cause a problem uh, with uh, pooling of urine so that it doesn't flush out of the system appropriately. And then you can get bacteria that track back up the system and and can have uh, uh, infections. Now there are it is important that you talk to your physician about that. That they are getting particularly in kids that you're verifying that it's a true infection. There's other things that can cause irritation to that area. We call those things like urethritis, mm-hmm. um, and that can be with bubble baths or lots of other things. Or uh, sometimes clothing can do that where you have some irritation there that can feel like you're having a urinary tract infection. So it is important to get, you know, a urine specimen from them and, and just to see if it is. And, and 10's old enough that they can, you know, you don't have to do a catheterization or anything like that. But I would say if it's multiple, you know, if you're talking three or four, uh, I, that's, that's enough ut- uh, urinary tract infections at that age to go ahead and, and require some further testing. And some of the things that they might do is a, a ultrasound of the kidneys looking for any kind, again, any kind of um, uh, abnormal drainage system from the kidneys to the bladder uh, and or to the outside of the body. And then there's some other functional testing that they can do uh, to see if the bladder's emptying appropriately, if they have... Uh, if the valve system is is appropriate there, and if it's if it's not, if sometimes you can have uh, where the uh, uh, the drainage uh, tubes from the kidneys to the bladder, they can be inserted into the bladder at a little bit different angle uh, or other problems downstream of that. Then sometimes, in in rare cases, surgery is recommended, and we've got really good surgical techniques that uh, that uh, you know aren't quite as invasive as they used to be. The, the problem if you don't fix that is it's a setup for chronic infections, and it, the longer you have those, the more that you have, the more potential damage you could have to your kidneys later on that could damage them. So, uh, you know, at 10, I would say if she's had multiple ones, say three, four, uh, I would ask your, your doctor about maybe going to a pediatric urologist, uh, not a neurologist, but a urologist, and uh, to test, uh, you know, get some of those tests a little bit further. And sometimes a pediatrician will suggest that, and they'll go ahead and get some of those tests before they see urology. But, yeah, I, w- I would get that checked out if it's if it's that many times. Is, um, is there any truth to cranberry juice? Drinking cranberry juice. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good uh, question. So a lot of people would say, you know, for for frequent UTIs, there are certain things that you uh, might take. Uh, cranberry juice is one that they've looked at, and uh, you know, there's there's a couple of different things that affect um, uh, urinary tract infections. One is the amount of urine of urine flow that goes through the system. So if you can imagine, you know, the more you drink, the more fluids of any type, whether that's cranberry juice or water the more volume that you put through that system, the more you're going to flush it out. So drinking fluids of any kind can be beneficial. They've looked at cranberry juice. Some very, you know, small studies have seen some improvement there that that maybe that's preventative, Uh, certainly not as a treatment. It's probably not a good idea to do that just as a single treatment for a UTI. But to prevent it, uh, there seems to be maybe a little bit of evidence that it does decrease the risk of it. But if you've got a problem in the pipes, it doesn't really matter what you put through there. Even if it's increased volume, it's still going to be 
you know, something that needs to be corrected surgically. Cranberry juice shouldn't hurt, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you like to drink that, uh, that's certainly, certainly good. I would say 100% juice, probably more than, you know, some of the mixtures that are a lot of sugar in there. But, uh, yeah, that's been looked at. You know, I've heard some older people, it seems like all of a sudden vinegar has a has resurged for just about everything from mm-hmm. cholesterol to, you know, and that tastes nasty anyway. But, uh, you know, for a 10-year-old, good luck with getting them to drink that. But there's there's no evidence of anything else that I know of that's that's been useful. But generally speaking, the more you drink, the more you flush out the pipes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Chloe, for that question. Common thing that happens, you know, younger kids um, can uh, can certainly get uh, urinary tract infections, and I'm, by younger I mean babies too. And uh, there's uh, that can be really hard to detect what's going on, and you really have to be just aware of that if they have fever. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to your questions that you might have, and looking at the news about what's new in pediatrics. If you have a question or a comment about the health of your child or your family, you can call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. MPB seeks an experienced multimedia journalist to produce NPR-style news stories and features on issues of local and regional interest. And be comfortable and competent with social media and reporting on multiple platforms. More information at mpbonline.org more slash careers. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, election upset. The voters have chosen businessman Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States. MPB political analysts Republican Austin Barber and Democrat Brandon Jones break down how Trump defeated Hillary Clinton, what they expect during the Trump presidency, and what it could mean for Mississippi. Join us for Mississippi's only statewide television news program, At Issue, this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB-TV. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and we're talking about everything today. That means that the show is being determined by you. So if you've got any health care questions that you've been thinking about mulling over, maybe you need a different uh, answer than what you've gotten from other people, we want you to call in this morning with those questions or comments about things that you uh, just got to get off your chest about health care. This is the place to do it. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline 
org. So speaking of urinary tract infections, so there's some recent evidence. Uh, I talked a little bit before the break about uh, about younger kids uh, having urinary tract infections. So younger meaning uh, birth to really six months of age. And sometimes that presents, of course, they can't tell you at that age what's going on. You really have to be very observant about about things. Sometimes there's a urine change in color or in uh, in how it smells uh, an odor that's changed there that parents will come in and say hey something's wrong here or sometimes it's just fever uh, and we will look at that if they're you know the younger they are so this was a uh, a study of over 800 healthy well-appearing children that were ages 6 to 24 months of age uh, that presented to an emergency room for evaluation of a fever. And as part of that evaluation, they do a urine screening. And um, one of the ways that we have done this in the past uh, to try to make sure that we don't contaminate the urine with any kind of bacteria uh, that are in the vicinity of the urethra is we'll do a catheterization. So that's putting a tube through the urethra, whether that's a boy or a girl, up into the bladder to obtain a urine specimen, uh, and then the tube is immediately, you know, immediately withdrawn, and that's the best way to get a a, a uncontaminated specimen if we're really going to do a culture. Now there are two things we usually get for urinary tract infections: we get the the culture, but we also get what's called a urinalysis. So there's a lot of things that urine can tell us about infection. Uh, most commonly, there uh, there's an increase in white blood cells. Uh, when you have a, an acute infection, there can be other things that cause that. And then you may see bacteria in the urine uh, itself when you when you do the urine specimen. There's a lot of other things that we look at, specific gravity, the presence of red blood cells, there's sediment, there's all kinds of different things that we can look at, uh, breakdown products that bacteria break down, nitrates, uh, all those things we look at from a urine specimen. But a lot of times we won't do the culture necessarily up front. Uh, we'll do the, the urinalysis. So this study was mainly looking at these 800 healthy individuals from 6 months to 24 months of age. And they, what they, the alternative to doing the catheter is to do what's called a bagged urine. So it's a little, looks sort of like a small Ziploc bag that has an adhesive to it that you put over that area, um, over the inguinal area, so that you can capture urine um, in that child. So they, they looked at bag specimens uh, to reduce the number of, of uh, uh, urine cultures from bladder catheterization. And, uh, you know, it's not helpful necessarily for those cultures, but it was potentially helpful for, for screening that urine. Um, but they did say that bagged urine specimens should not be routinely used to obtain urine samples for culture, but it was useful, as useful as doing just the urinalysis. So if you were going to follow up with a culture, you'd still have to, to catheterize. But if the urine looks okay, and that's something that we usually get back from the lab from most places pretty quick, uh, it could save you the, the hassle of having to do that. And it's an invasive thing. You know, it's not comfortable uh, for the child. Usually there's a little bit of discomfort or uh, pain involved with that uh, in doing that. But uh, just something out there that's, uh, that is uh, that is new, fairly new, within that last year or so uh, about those urine specimens. Talking about all things uh, that you have on your mind today or that we've received, and got a couple of topics here that I'm going to touch on too, but if you'd like to call in with any kind of health care questions uh, from your family, you can give us a ring today at 
one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kids and teens at mpbonline.org. You know, we've talked about concussions on the program off and on with different sports. Of course, football, particularly here in the South, is a big one that we look at. And uh, actually, I saw a TED Talk on on concussions. It was really informative uh, as a guy that was was looking at different ways to measure the forces inside uh, the brain uh, to see, you know, what kind of of um, what kind of rotational or direct forces uh, from different hits and um, and had a great way of, of looking at that from a mouthpiece that a player would wear. You know, all players are required to wear mouthpieces in football. And uh, they looked, they had little detectors in that that measured the forces, whether they were direct forces. In other words, a player hit somebody else or somebody else hit them. They may have hit the ground directly. Or if their head rotated, it could... Uh, record those forces too, and then correlate that to what was actually happening in the brain. This was done on adults in this study, uh, but they followed it up with you know with actual concussive injuries. But also they took uh, MRIs of the brain to look at any kind of damage. Very interesting thing. So so what about severe concussions? So I know some people uh, have experienced this unfortunately with their children. May have had a concussion. I think everybody now is is pretty familiar with a a gradual progression back to play. So it's not based on a a certain length of time per se. It's based on how that individual patient is responding and how they're, you know, if they have any symptoms like headache or blurry vision or uh, what we call photophobia or a sensitivity to light um, or in some cases cognitive disorders. So sometimes they'll have differences in, in how they think through things because of that damage that they have. So in in uh, in some children though in adolescence that goes on for longer periods of time. So this was a study uh, that looked at uh, forty nine children in adolescence, and they were from uh, eleven years old to seventeen years old, and they had persistent symptoms for at least a month or longer from sports related concussions. And what they found is how you deal with that. It if you're having concussions for that length of time or more that you had better outcomes down the road if you had a collaborative treatment team. Uh, And um, that included either a psychologist that was experienced in that or a psychiatrist that was uh, really looking at those, some of those other subtle issues. And, and it really helped down the line there. What we are learning at least from concussive injuries like that is it really, it, it really, you cannot go wrong with, with having that, you know, everybody wants to get back in the game. They want to keep playing. Certainly a lot of players would sort of blow off symptoms because they know that's going to keep them out. Uh, but if you want to continue not only playing, but have, you know, at least a, a decreased incidence of long-term effects from that, uh, what we know now is, 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 uh, uh, staying out of the game, really not doing anything else. A lot of people think, well, if my kid's not playing football, they can do other things. They might can run around, play other sports. You really need to sit everything out until those symptoms go away, be evaluated by someone, someone who's trained. And according to this study, you know, good outcomes, if it's more than say a month or two out and they're still having symptoms, you really need a multidisciplinary uh, clinic that looks at that with different people looking in on it and, and following those individual things, individual symptoms so that they can not only get back to play, but also get back to to normal functioning from the way that they they think through things. So a little bit of interesting stuff there on concussions. 
This is Open Line Day on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and we would love to hear from you this morning. You can give us a ring at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Well, what about sleep? Sleep's always something that if you have kids, uh, particularly adolescents, that you deal with. I know I picked mine up from uh, practice last night. They've transitioned from football into soccer now, and both of them playing on the same team. And picked them up about 5 o'clock on the way home. My youngest fell asleep in the car. And uh, when he falls asleep, it's it's like a coma, if you're not familiar with it. He's one of those sleepers. So, uh, so by the time we got home, woke back up a little bit, we ate, and then he fell asleep on the couch. You know, what about sleep? Uh, duration. What are some of the effects of that? Well, we know it can influence all kinds of things from uh, from physical activity to cognitive performance in school. Uh, sleep really is important, and it certainly isn't valued very much by kids, by most kids or teens. Most of them sort of blow that off. And, you know, some of us adults do it as well. So this is an interesting study back from uh, from August that looked at adolescence and the risk of obesity with with sleep. And it was a large study that looked uh, it followed them for a long period of time. But basically, it was school children that they were looking at bedtime. So what time did you go to bed? And for those, there were two groups. There was a group that went to bed at 8 p.m. or earlier. And I don't know about you, but good luck. If, you've, if you're getting your kids to bed by 8 p.m. and they're adolescents, I don't know what you're using for, you know, some coercion, but that's, that's some good stuff there. And the other half um, were uh, at 9 p.m. or later. And after they adjusted for all kinds of different variables, including, you know, uh, obesity in the family, uh, education, income levels. It looks like the ones that got more sleep, the ones that were going to bed before 8 p.m., had significantly lower rates of obesity uh, than the ones that uh, were staying up a lot longer. So some interesting things there about sleep and how it affects things. Uh, certainly, again, it gets blown off a lot of times. People think they're wasting time if they're asleep. Certainly a lot of adolescents do that uh, because they want to stay up. They want to stay uh, you know, in the game about things. We've also talked here about some of the things that can influence that with um, uh, electronic devices, TV, uh, video games that are accessible in the bedroom, probably don't need to be there. And, uh, you know, you need to, to really know what's going on. And uh, we, we have in our family, we've sort of established a, a device-free bedroom uh, for everybody. And a little bit hard to follow that for adults. I know it's something that sometimes if I'm uh, late night writing notes to to catch up on things to uh, to stick with. So uh, something to think about, though, that sleep can even influence obesity. Let's go to Steve in Pearl River County. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Steve. Are you with us? I can hear you, Steve. Are you there? Oh, hi. Yeah, thanks. I uh, Sure. I'm driving along in my car, and... Uh, I just wanted to ask you about some Obamacare rules. I, I was wondering if you think what changes might think ha- will happen with Trump coming in. Wow. I've got a perfect example of it uh, in our own family. Uh, we needed a drug, uh, an anti-inflammatory called Rapamune uh, for a family member. And uh, it's used for uh, uh, different uses, but... The doctors wanted to prescribe it, but the uh, regulators in Washington said, "No, no, you can't. You can't prescribe it." 
And the FDA said, yeah, this would be a perfect use for this drug. And they would sign out a, uh, a new drug use for it. They would sign one in a, in a heartbeat. They said, this is perfect. This is exactly what we recommend uh, in this rare disease to use. But then the attorneys uh, locally who, who work in the clinics said, no, no, you can't do this. And so everything got tied up in knots. And uh, uh, it went on for 14 months without being able to get this medicine uh, for a family member who needed it. Uh, eventually, the local doctors said, look, you're smart people. Go to Canada. Go to Mexico. This is the only medicine that's going to help you. Uh, went to Canada, found out they changed the rules, went to Mexico, uh, saw a physician there. They said, yes, this is exactly what, what is needed and prescribed it. And so we get the medicine out of Mexico for about $500 instead of $700, which is what our insurance company would have to pay for it here uh, per month. Do uh, you see any changes in the way that the regulators in Washington are going to be controlling the physicians who want to prescribe medicine for rare diseases or for patients that they think uh, should get the med. We've got 12 or 14 doctors who felt like this is the medicine right. to be given to our family member, but uh, they were prohibited by uh, their, all the regulators from doing so. Yes. Uh, what, what do you think about that. Yeah, Steve, that, that's that's you brought up a great question. It's something that we deal with every day in physicians' offices, whether that's a, a pediatric patient or an adult patient. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of different layers here that I think we should we should touch on. One is, you know, access to care deals deals a lot with plenty of different things. Uh, certainly insurance or or availability to insurance no matter what that is, if it's one of the federally, uh, you know, endorsed plans um, that certainly we don't have in Mississippi with the, with not having an expansion through Medicaid, maybe Medicaid, maybe another insurance, whatever it is, that's, you know, that's one layer of that. But even if you have that, if you have insurance, and we see this a whole lot with, with our Medicare patients that have Part D plans that pay for prescriptions, uh, they may have great access for visits, but they don't necessarily have good prescription coverage. Every single one of those plans is a little bit different, and it doesn't stay the same through time. And generally speaking, most of the plans, they cover basic medications, for instance, antibiotics that are common, you know, for, uh, for uh, you know, infections that come up. Uh, if uh, somebody has hypertension or diabetes, there are a standard number of medications that they'll cover. Uh, most people are familiar with tiers, so there are certain tiers that they'll cover one with no copay or a lower copay, and then the higher up the tier you get, uh, the more you, the, the patient has to pay and the less the insurance will pay for that. So what happens, though, when you get into rare situations, which I think, Steve, that's probably where you, where y'all are right now, um, when you get in those rare situations that, that are uh, diseases or chronic medical conditions that do require something else, either because you've tried all those common things or because that medical therapy is the most specific therapy for that disease state, that's when you get into these situations where a lot of the plans will not cover that. And, you know, it does come down to a, to a money uh, issue most of the time because it's, it's most of those medications are more expensive, as you, you know, as you alluded, uh, the amount that you had to pay getting it from Mexico. A lot of people are going to other countries. Certainly we have, 
you know, a regulatory layer here um, to help with safety. So the FDA primarily is related for safety. It's very arduous process for medications to get through that. Other countries don't necessarily have the same process and they can approve medications quicker. Um, if you do that, you know, I know you've got, it sounds like you've got a great relationship with your primary physician. Uh, you need to make sure that they're aware of those medications, uh, you know, uh, so that they can monitor for any kind of potential side effects. They may have to do a little bit of research if it's a medication that's not available in the United States. Now you ask the, you know, that the kicker question is what's going to happen Steve, I don't have any idea what's going to happen. So uh, it's it is up in the air, and nobody really knows about that. Certainly, uh, no system is perfect. A lot, I've heard stories, uh, both with my patients and others, that a lot of people have been helped by the expansion of uh, you know what what most of the Affordable Care Act of Obamacare. I've heard people say, you know what, we got on it. It wasn't what we expected. Actually, we're not doing as well as we thought we were, or maybe in some cases worse. So no system is perfect. Uh, you know, that is that is a big issue. And for patients that are paying for it, that's the frustration I think that all of us have is that, uh, you know, they're paying money for this and what is actually going to be covered. And everything is not covered on any plan. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's it's hard to dissect out what uh, ch- this, you know, new change in administration is going to do. I can only... I couldn't even speculate, actually, at this point, just to what's going to happen with that. And in an ideal world, uh, you know, your physician and and you would come up with an individualized therapy. In fact, that's the way we're moving in medicine to more targeted therapies, targeted therapies for each individual person, so that we can map out this is the drug that would be good for you. Not it's necessarily a group of people, but for you because of this reason and. You know, genetic therapies, what we know about uh, genomics and how that inter- interacts with different diseases, that's going to become more important. And I don't know if, you know, certainly I haven't seen that approach by by healthcare carriers, by insurance companies to this point. Um, there's a lot of hoops. I, you know, I jump through them too. There's a lot of paperwork that we have to fill out, and sometimes that involves phone conversations with somebody else about why, as a physician, I think that this medication is best for this individual patient. Sometimes they approve those, sometimes they don't. So you have to do the best job you can. It does take a lot of time. I can tell you from my experience, most of the time, you know, you're, you're talking about at the minimum 10 or 15 minutes more to, to fill out that paperwork. And at a maximum, I think the, the longest I have been on the phone for a patient uh, is an hour uh, to, you know, for one patient, for one medication, actually that they were taking for years and didn't have any side effects. So Steve, that's a, that's a great question. Who knows? I would say, do your homework on that. Uh, you know, parents are, have to be resourceful for the things that they need. And, uh, and we'll see Uh great time to continue uh, advocacy for this issue with your local legislators and your national legislators in office. So thanks for that question, Steve. And uh, we'll, we'll stay tuned for what's going to come out uh, as far as uh, health care policy. We have Jan in Greenwood. Thank you for your patience, Jan. Did you have a question or a comment about helmets? I do. I just um, walked in the room a little before you started talking about concussions and I'm talking specifically about riding helmets. Yes. Um, there are over 100,000 uh, horses in Mississippi. I don't know how many riders, but that kind of gives you an idea. 
And I just want to, I just can't stress enough the importance of adults, but especially, especially children um, wearing a certified safety helmet. Um, there is just an awful lot of peer pressure out there, especially in the Western community, that, you know, we didn't do that as kids and it's not cool, but there's just proof, proof, proof that those um, specially designed equine helmets prevent an awful lot of concussion to the brain, and then, of course, the heart outside physically protects the skull. So just encourage parents to... Um, get those helmets and, and latch them on their children. Yeah, thanks, Jan. That's a great suggestion. Uh, certainly in any sport, whether that's in some of them you don't think about, so the equestrian sports, whether you're just hanging out and riding, you know, uh, riding a horse somewhere, uh, or if it's in more, you know, in competition, you're right. That's not something that is uh, thought about a whole lot. Uh, certainly have other areas in the state that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, pushback from from people about uh, about wearing protective gear, whether that's bicycle riding, whether that's four wheelers, mm-hmm. um, and certainly in any kind of motor vehicle, motorized vehicle, that's that's something that you want to think about, or in in the situations that you're talking about as well. I think thought you brought up something really good too. I've seen all kinds of bizarre things just in my neighborhood that people wear sometimes that aren't specific to that one sport. So, you know, you have to keep in mind just because you have protective gear for one sport. I was, it, I was just about to say, yeah. people say, well, I'll just wear a bike helmet. Well, that's kind of like putting a pancake on your head. <laughs> it's a totally, it's not going to protect the G forces that are coming from the height and the speed that you go. And even if you're just walking along and fall off, you're eight feet off the ground. Yeah, that's so. a long way off yeah. a horse. You're right. Yeah, everything, you know, it's, it's designed specifically for that one activity. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's great to think about that and, and think about, you know, particularly if you have a novice, I would say that's probably the most, uh, you know. With well, the, the studies show really um, it's, it's, that's true for the novice, and certainly a lot depends on the temperament of the, and the athleticism of the horse, but the more advanced riders should be safer, but then they're doing more advanced, dangerous things. So, you know, yeah, sure. it's kind of the yeah. same for everybody. It's interesting about protective gear. This is sort of something you said sort of jogged my mind. So I heard a, um, a uh, talk by John Krakauer, and I don't know if anybody's familiar with him. He was a uh, really world-famous uh, climber, climbed Everest several times. He wrote the book Into Thin Air mm. about his experiences of several people dying on Everest. And he talked about the Sherpas that they would climb with in um, in the Himalayas uh, in, in Nepal and how they pushed themselves so much because this is their livelihood. And they took, they cut corners. They, they didn't take the necessarily, you know, necessary safety protocols that they should and a lot of them died from it so john krakauer and others are like you know we need to, te- we need to teach them safety uh techniques and they taught them all these climbing techniques to increase safety but what happened is the sherpas took those techniques and it allowed them to do more dangerous things with them and i think you know you can make the same comment about if you're wearing a helmet all of a sudden you're protected against anything and everything uh, or if you're more experienced, you may think, okay, then I don't have to wear a helmet. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, certainly you can, you can have a little bit too much confidence. And 
particularly if we're talking about kids or teenagers. I mean, we know a teenager is going to have, you know, sort of push those boundaries. So thanks, uh, thanks, Jan, for, for bringing that to our attention. That's a, that's a great issue that you don't hear about a whole lot. But safety equipment, extremely important in minimizing injuries in whatever your kids or your family is involved in. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we got plenty of time for any kind of questions or comments that you have about anything related to the health care of your family. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. There's a lot to be discovered about Mississippi. Like the little-known places you can visit on a Mississippi road trip. Or where to find a local brewery for a unique experience. Every Friday morning at 10, we take you on an hour-long journey through Mississippi. It's music, cuisine, culture, and history. And you never know where our next stop will be. I'm Mary Margaret Miller. And I'm Sharita Brent. Be sure to join us Friday mornings at 10 for Next Stop Mississippi on MPB Think Radio. News you can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and this is Open Line Day, which means anything that you want to call in for, we are taking your calls. Got a couple of comments on some other things. Let's go to Fred in Natchez, who has a comment on formularies, I believe. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Your previous caller who was uh, having to travel to get uh, drugs or pharmaceuticals for a family member, I'd just like to make a comment. A lot of people don't understand that uh, due to the Affordable Care Act, uh, since the passage of that act, uh, what's been happening in terms of uh, formularies, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and the access to different health care in our state particularly, because we're so rural, a lot of that's been affected by something called gaming the system, which you may or may not be aware of. Probably you are. Uh, 
since that bill was passed, the average length of time a Blue Cross individual policy sold uh, after the bill was passed is 4.7 months, which translates into uh, clients or uh, consumers finding out they need a surgery, uh, perhaps the very expensive medicine for hep C, uh, something pretty uh, financially devastating possibly. And due to the law, they can buy insurance without answering health questions. And what's happening, people are buying policies, being treated, and then dropping the policies. So when people see the fact there's less competition, fewer insurance companies, and fewer providers taking policies that they buy through the exchanges, a lot of it is due to the fact that people, uh, and understandably so, um, are buying policies, being treated, dropping them, and that leaves uh, the companies that are trying to keep going in this environment hung with huge, huge claims and then, as we all know from the news, uh, people aren't keeping the policies that they buy. Uh, the insurance uh, office here in uh, the state of Mississippi, the reason you see huge increases on your policies uh, is because the insurance commissioner is having to um, allow companies to have those increases just so they can stay in business. In the pharmaceutical industry, the rate hikes on just even everyday drugs is so dramatic that it's become a real conundrum for physicians and patients and hospitals alike, especially in our wonderful rural area, because we have less access to good comprehensive policies with broad formularies. And when your child needs a drug or cream or whatever, and it's not on the formulary, either due to the FDA saying, well, that drug's not approved for that illness, it is so frustrating. And your comment uh, that now is the time to contact our congressmen and senators and express these, these problems is uh, very salient and very important because our state is really uh, being hurt by a lot of these problems. And I really appreciate your program for helping illuminate this. Thank, thank you, Fred, for those comments. I think you're right. I think there's a, you know, it's, it is a complex issue, certainly affected by uh, a lot of different uh, components to it. You mentioned uh, drug prices going up. Uh, sometimes exponentially without uh, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of explanation and uh, it's certainly a, a, a system you have to wade through to to, uh, to get what you think is right for the patient and uh, we do need to you continue to think about that the health care of our state and, and other states in the south I think is are similar to this is that uh, you know that that really affects lots of things down the road if you're and it's not just medications either. It is access to care. You mentioned some people sort of gaming the system with rotating the policies out. And um, that's, you know, that doesn't really deliver uh, the preventive care you need so that you don't have a lot of those chronic medical conditions. So 
lot of different issues. The more you know, and that's why we're here uh, to get the word out on things like this and and acute problems. Uh, the more that that our uh, state knows about that, I think the more uh, power that they have to really affect change. Uh, for the better. So uh, I appreciate those comments, Fred, and uh, uh, thank you for being uh, up to date on those and sharing that with with our audience. Got two emails here that I wanted to touch on. Uh, The first is from Melanie in Tupelo, and she says, is melatonin safe for kids beginning at what age and how much? So melatonin is a a substance in the body. It's a normal hormone that the body uses to help regulate sleep and and waking cycles. So melatonin will surge up when you get uh, to normally, uh, you know, if you if you go to sleep and uh, wake up at about the same time, usually that's related to light levels. So there are receptors in the back of the eye that stimulate parts of the brain that produce melatonin that make you sleepy uh, when those light levels fall. And uh, we've talked about that a little bit with electronic devices in the past, how that sort of artificially stimulates it. So so what they've looked at is melatonin. Uh, they've uh, identified that, that hormone and its effects, and they've made an artificial component that is melatonin that is safe to take orally. Um, it's been used in adults first and now in, in kids, particularly older kids and adolescents. Um, you know, if you have... Uh, some, uh, if your child is having problems going to sleep, one of the first things I would do in the office is take a sleep history. So tell me what goes on before sleep. Uh, what are you doing? What are you eating before sleep? And sometimes you can, you can tease out, uh, that sleep hygiene is what we call it. Uh, you know, are you going to sleep with a TV in the room so that you're stimulating those receptors or you're stimulating auditory receptors with, you know, music, do they have a phone in the room? Do they have something, a tablet that they're interacting with that's doing the same thing? Get those things out of there first. And if they are having problems, there are different ways to do it. I, I tend to not uh, go to medications unless we have to. Uh, melatonin is is generally thought to be safe. I don't know of any studies that have shown negative side effects with that. You always want to start at the lower dose uh, to take it, but I would consult a physician if you are, even though you can buy melatonin over the counter. Um, I probably would not use it less than 10 years of age unless you consult a physician first. There might be another reason why you would not give that in certain situations. And uh, the, the lowest dose usually is around a milligram uh, at night. You can go, there's really not an upper limit of normal, but most people above three to five milligrams a night, you're probably not going to get much effect after that. What it's most useful for is in uh, jet lag, actually, is resetting, because that's its, its, its primary function in the brain is to reset that, um, uh, that time period. So if you're traveling across country, that's, uh, you, know, you can take melatonin when you go to sleep in that new time zone, and it sort of reset, helps you reset that so that you don't have jet lag if you're not up you know, at the crack of dawn or... Uh, or uh, having trouble going to sleep at that same time. So generally thought to be safe, but want to check it out, particularly in younger kids. So it may be, you know, something that might interact. And the other thing is finding a a consistent uh, dosage of that sometimes can be a problem. So thank you for that email, Melanie and Tupelo. And thank you for all our callers today. And I always appreciate that. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and it's been a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. 
Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue Mobile.